Testament here, kind of the middle of the Old Testament, maybe the first third of your Bible or so. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel, the first page of 1 Samuel. We've been working for several weeks through a series called Hope for the Discouraged. Last week, we looked particularly at hope in suffering through the life of Job. Today's text takes us down a particular path of suffering, hope in lonely grief, and particularly hope in childlessness, as Hannah struggles with what it means to not have a child when her, long, or her heart longs more than anything else to have children. And this morning, as we walk through this text, we'll see together that Christ can heal the heart broken by lonely grief. Christ can heal the heart broken by lonely grief. It's been a number of years ago now, and you're all somewhat familiar with the story, but I can remember in the days after losing my dad, I've lost a number of other loved ones since, but that was the first time that grief hit really close to home for, for me and for my siblings and our family. And a part of my grief in that moment was not just losing the relationship, although it certainly was that. It was also a sense of all that was lost. You have something, and then it's gone. And when that thing is gone, it leaves a hole in its place. And you begin to realize in that moment all the things that will never be there, the thing that you had, and it's gone. But I can remember several years later walking with a friend through grief as she lost her father. Her father was different than mine. My dad was a loving, very engaged dad who loved the Lord, loved us, us children, loved uh, my mom. And so there was a sense of relationship there. But in her case, her dad was, was not like that. He was distant, overbearing, manipulative. And she never really felt like she had a relationship with her dad. And so she, as an adult, when she lost her father, she grieved what she hoped for but never had. And sometimes grief is a sense of what we lose, something that we had. Other times it's a grief of hoping for something and never having it. Proverbs 13 tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Something you long for and never receive can strike your heart in ways that something had and lost can't sometimes. But desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul. And when we come to the life of Hannah, we see an unrealized hope. An unrealized hope can break your heart. Longing for something and never having it. Wanting a child and not seeing God answer that prayer. Longing for a child only to lose a child through miscarriage or other form of death and when you lose something like that whether it's a child early in life whether it's a child you never had or whether it's seeing a child grow and then losing that child it brings with it a pain so deep that it feels impossible to express it's a grief so private a wound so tender that there's not really even a way to verbalize to those closest to you what it means for you. You see, sometimes to feel the pain of a love lost is bad. 
But at other times, to feel the pain of a loved hope for and never had is worse. We find ourselves today in such a moment. One of God's children, Hannah, longs for a child. She's in agony because she can't have them. So let's pick up our biblical text now. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Anna had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why don't you eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? The first thing that we observe in Hannah's story is her pain. The first person, though, that we meet is Elkanah, verse 1. There was a certain man named Elkanah. So we think, aha, here's our main character. But Elkanah is a little bit like the man in the foreground of the opening movie shot walking into the village square. He walks in and your eye is following him, and then you realize someone else really is the central character here. Hannah is Elkanah's wife, and she is living a life filled with pain. Now, it's important to understand the context of Hannah's pain. And so the setting for this comes to us in verse 2, he has two wives. Now we've seen this recently in Jacob's life, it didn't work out well there, and it's not going to work out well for Elkanah. We know we're set up for conflict, and to make matters worse, like Leah and Rachel, one wife can have a lot of kids and does, and the other one has no children. This isn't the first time that we've met a woman in this state. Genesis 17, Sarah. Abraham. Genesis 25, Rebecca and Isaac. Genesis 30, Rachel and Jacob. And now, Hannah and Elkanah. And it doesn't stop here. When we reach the New Testament, in the book of Luke, it's a barren older woman by the name of Elizabeth who gives birth eventually to John the Baptist. Remarkably, in a way that doesn't quite make sense to us, God has worked through the pain of of childlessness to raise up key figures and leaders throughout redemptive history. Now, Elkanah lives in an unusual day. It's the days of the book of Judges. The last verse in Judges ends this way. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a day of apostasy. It's a day of anarchy, it's a day of rebellion against the Lord. So in verse 3, when Elkanah used to go up year by year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, he's an unusual man. He's offering sacrifices, he's devout on a day when no one is devout. Now it may have struck you that he's going up to Shiloh to offer sacrifices. 
Well, this is the days before the nation, the kingdom of Israel, the days before the kings and the days before the temple is set up in Jerusalem. So 20 miles north of Jerusalem is the town of Shiloh. And at this time, the tabernacle, traveling, tent, and the Ark of the Covenant are in Shiloh. Exodus 34 tells us that the law requires men to go three times a year to offer sacrifices. So Elkanah is religiously devout in a day when very few people were. You don't find many men like this. But ironically, it's through the sacrifices, through the worship, that we get a picture of the problem. Verse 4. On the day when he sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina and all her sons and daughters. Penina has gotten it done. On a day when your worth depends on your ability to have children, Hannah, on the other hand, has been a miserable failure. Yet for all these issues, Elkanah doesn't resent Hannah. He cherishes her. He loves her. He's a good husband. Verse 5. To Hannah, he gives a double portion because he loved her. But good intentions can get you only so far. Verse 7. So it went on year by year. This is not a brief trial. As often as Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, Penina used to provoke her. Worship becomes a deep source of pain for Hannah. A reminder of the fact that she has no children, therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Yet what in the end is the cause for Hannah's pain? Look at the end of verse 5. The Lord had closed her womb. Then at the end of verse 6, the Lord had closed her her womb. Now, we're pretty smart, so we all have an idea of what's best, don't we? We got it figured out. We know what's good, what's best. And yet God's word shows us over and over again that God actually does know. And that God's ways are not ours, higher than our ways, and yet we can trust God's heart. Trust the Lord's goodness, even when we can't see his good purposes clearly. Imagine with me for a moment that we're not in this church, we're at the first church in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, the Lord leaves, ascends to heaven. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes and descends on his disciples in power. Tongues of fire appear over their heads. People speaking in tongues. And one day, 3,000 souls saved. Shortly after this, another 5,000 saved. I mean, the church is growing by leaps and bounds, enduring persecution, but growing. But then in Acts chapter 7, we reach tragedy in this early church. Stephen is one of the first group appointed as deacons in this church. He's a man full of the spirit and of wisdom. Respected and elected to office in this church. But his witness is so faithful it leads him to being arrested. Stephen's no coward. He's arrested and then he witnesses to the glory and truth of the gospel boldly in the face of persecution. And on that day, Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church, stoned to death for his faith in Christ. Imagine that you're Stephen's wife, mother, child, friend. 
There's no way that this can feel right. Even if you believe the gospel, even if you're a follower of the way, even if you know Christ, it doesn't feel right that someone who gave himself this devotedly, this passionately to following Christ will be the one to lose his life so prematurely. And yet going on in that passage is something else remarkable because Luke writes and he tells us about a man who's there helping. He's holding everyone's coats while they throw the rocks. Acts 8 verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. Now if you know the rest of the New Testament, you know that this man, Saul, becomes the apostle Paul, gloriously converted. And no doubt, part of his experience is observing the genuine faith of Stephen dying for Christ. And he becomes largely responsible for the rapid spread of the gospel throughout the Gentiles among that region of the globe. It's unbelievable. And if we were sitting here, we would choose another way. And yet on that day, what Stephen's wife, mother, kids could never know is that God planned through that moment to send the gospel among the nations. The Lord closed her womb. Doesn't make the pain any less intense. Verse 7, Hannah wept and would not eat. And you can imagine the conversations around the dinner table at Elkanah's house. Panina's getting all, everyone set up. Okay, everyone have food? There are so many of you, I lose track. Mommy, why doesn't Miss Hannah have any kids? Shh, you know you're not supposed to ask that question. Is something wrong with her? Did she do something wrong? Don't ask those sorts of questions at the dinner table. Okay, let's see this. By the way, Hannah, did I tell you Elkanah and I are expecting again? I mean, poke, 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 poke. I mean, the text tells us she used to provoke her over and over and over again. Penina is using everything she can to rub it in Hannah's face that she has kids and Hannah doesn't. I mean, we've all got that sort of friend in our life, don't we? But they live in the same house. It's terrible. This pain has dug its way so deep into Hannah's soul that it's hard for her to function, even to eat. Have you ever had a pain so deep that you couldn't get out of bed? And then when somehow you did manage to roll out of bed, you didn't feel human. Because all you feel is the pain of the moment. And then you don't feel like eating, so you binge eat something bad just to make yourself eat. And then you feel worse after you binge eat on what you don't want to be eating in the first place. You see, in that moment, to be alive is to feel pain. And so after a while, all you can feel is numb because you can't feel pain anymore. To be alive is to despair. Life is pain. So what do you do when you're desperate? You cry out to God. Let's read verses 9 through 16. Verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. 
He was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Meal is over. Hannah gets up from the table and rushes back to the house of worship to plead with the Lord one more time. Verse 10, deeply distressed, she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. The first thing that we see in her prayer is her grief. She doesn't get immediate relief. She's asking God for a child, but she's weeping. Now, there's also some comfort here because there's something noticeably missing in this passage. Hannah is presented as a sympathetic figure, as a good wife, a sincere worshiper. There's never any rebuke or correction from the Lord. I mean, Eli Eli rebukes her, but he's wrong. The Lord hears her cry of pain. Look, if you find yourself grieving, wounded, hurting too deeply for words, you can trust the heart of our Heavenly Father. Jesus himself in the garden cried out to the Lord, Sweating so much, he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. You ever cried if you have no tears left? God is okay with your mess. You can't shock God with anything you say or think. You can shock the people around you. You shock your mom, your dad, your friends. You cannot shock God because God already knows. You can't express anything to God that God doesn't already know that you're thinking. There's no care too great. No thought too dark. No depression too deep to take to the Lord. By the same measure, there's no burden too small. No care too childish. No thought too trivial to take to the Lord. You can safely trust the heart of your heavenly Father. But Hannah's grief moves her to desperation. I mean, her husband loves her. Am I not like ten sons to you? But it's not enough to feel the wound, fill the wound in her heart. In that moment, she has nowhere to turn but to the Lord, and she cries out to him. And prayer should be the first instinct of God's children. Sometimes it's all you have when you have nothing else. And Hannah's prayer ultimately takes the form of a promise to God in verse 11. O Lord of hosts, if you will, give your servant a son. 
then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life. We see Hannah's devotion. Now, if we step back for a moment, this is remarkable because look again at verse 11. How does she address the Lord? O Lord of hosts. This is a reference to God's majesty, to his sovereignty, to his kingship over armies. This is a reference to the idea that he commands all the hosts of heaven. She speaks to this king and believes he cares for her. God's got a lot to do, a lot bigger fish to fry, but he cares for her. Hannah's a relatively unimportant person. She has an ordinary husband and a very ordinary life. Priest doesn't even know who she is. Yet she cries to the king of hosts and believes he cares for her. Now when you're hurting, it's tempting to believe that God doesn't know. That God doesn't see and certainly doesn't care. But this ordinary woman cries to the Lord, and the Lord hears her cry. Look at the way she prays, verse 13. She was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice wasn't heard. Her aching is too desperate to express with words, yet she speaks from her heart. Romans 8, 26 is such a beautiful verse in a moment like this. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. What kind of help is it that God's spirit offers God's children. We don't know what to pray for. (laughs) But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What do you say when you're so confused or so deeply hurt that you don't know what to say and if you say what you think it won't be good? In those moments, you can groan. You can groan in prayer to God and trust that God's Spirit prays perfectly for you because Paul tells us that the Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. When you don't know what to say, when you don't know what to do, you can groan and trust that God's Spirit is interceding for you. When you don't know what to say, he knows what to say. And he can accomplish more than you could ever hope to accomplish through his prayers. Oh, friend, if you know this kind of bruise, this kind of wound so deep in your heart that you don't even want to say it out loud, you can trust the care of our Heavenly Father. You can cry out to the God who knows, the God who listens, and the God himself who prays for you with groanings too deep for words. Well, what's worse than hurting alone? Hurting alone while others judge you. Eli misses the boat here. (laughs) And we got to be a little patient with Eli. I mean, people, a lot of people showing up for worship, having a sacrificial meal before showing up at the tabernacle, No doubt Hannah is not the first person to show up for worship sauce from having a little too much to drink. Verse 14. How long will you go on being drunk? I mean, he's probably shooing people away from here. 
It's not a bunch of godly people showing up at God's house. Put your wine away. But Hannah's not drunk. She's dead on the inside. Grief, not alcohol, is what's disorienting her. Oh, she's disoriented. She's weaving and bobbing, but it's grief. Verse 15, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I'm not drunk, but I've been pouring out my soul for the Lord. I've been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. What's the priest's job? Eli is there to intercede for the people to the Lord. But rather than pray alongside Hannah, he rebukes Hannah. He misunderstands. He reacts in judgment. The figure, the person who's supposed to be the godly, wise man, the priest in this moment, completely misses the boat. And rather than intercede for God's people, he judges God's people. See, Hannah's grief is outside the boundaries of normal emotional expression. It's easier to believe she's been kicking back the gin than that something else is going on here. She can't be sincerely seeking the Lord. Well, Eli, to his credit, quickly realizes he messed up. And he finally reacts like he should have the first time. And it's here that we have the first signs of hope. Let's read verses 17 through 20. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel, grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Hannah's prayer is answered. Eli now recognizes her and offers hope and assurance. Go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition. Hannah suffers alone. She prays alone. I mean, we know her husband wants her to be happy. But he's not there praying with her. But Hannah's prayer changes the entire situation. And his first answer is someone joining her in her prayer. It's one person praying alongside her. And if you've ever been in lonely grief, you've ever been walking alone, you know how much it means to have one person just walk beside you. They don't, know, have, to ha- they don't have to know the right things to say, They may not know the right things to do. They're just walking with you, praying with you. Sometimes that person's silent, sometimes speaking. Now, Eli's no all-star here. He doesn't exactly reach far into Hannah's pain. The God of Israel grant your petition that you've made. Literally, the God of Israel grant your asking that you have asked. Like, what do you ask? I hope God gives it to you. So first, Hannah's circumstances change. She has one person walking with her, but now her perspective changes. It changes her. Verse 18, the woman went her way and ate. Her face was no longer sad. This moment changes her perspective. She's moved from 
overwhelming, debilitating, unspeakable grief to hope. It seems that what she's done is she's taking this burden that's crushing her and she's casting it on the Lord. Listen to 1 Peter 5, 6 for a moment. Humble yourselves, Peter says, therefore under the mighty mighty hand of God that in due time he may exalt you. There's this call to humble ourselves before the Lord. And often we think of pride as some sort of like beating our chest, throwing ourselves around. But in the context here in 1 Peter 5, what kind of pride is he talking about? Verse 7 continues, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The specific form of pride here in 1 Peter is a pride of thinking we can carry burdens that God can carry. The idea that we can heap and carry on ourselves all of these things. There are some loads you can't bear. If you try to carry them yourself, you will break under the load. So the trick for God's children is to be honest about our cares, honest about our anxieties, including the fact that they can be too much to bear and cast them on the Lord. And then what's the trade-off? We take his burden on us. He takes our burden and we take his. And in Matthew 11, this is what Jesus pleads with us to do. His burden is light. Burden and light don't go together, but if you walk in the yoke of Christ, the trick is he's carrying it. Take his yoke on you. Her perspective is changed, and then the gift is received. In the end, God answers Hannah's prayer, gives her a son. And in verse 19, we find these beautiful words, the Lord remembered Now, we just saw this with Rachel. The Lord remembered Rachel. Uh, Sometimes we play a game in our house. This doesn't really have an, I'm just giving it a name now. But it's like, pretend you're not paying attention. And so, kid pretending they don't want to be tickled, and yet wanting more than anything else, dad, to tickle me right now. And so my job is to walk along beside, behind, beside said child and pretend as if I don't notice that child's there. And then at some point, though, spring into action. And it's tickle time. Well, in that moment, I'm walking along. I know that child exists. I know that child wants dad to wrestle or play or tickle or whatever. But then I remember And then I spring into action. And every time we see this phrase in Scripture, the Lord remembered Noah. The Lord remembered Abraham. The Lord remembered Rachel. The Lord remembered Hannah. The Lord remembers when he intends to act. It's not a comment on what he knows. It's a comment about his intention. Boom, it's time to act. So Hannah bore a son called his name Samuel, for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. In Hebrew, the consonants in the name Samuel are in the same order as the verb to ask. His name is a reference to the fact that he is a request. She knows where this baby comes from. 
So where do we go for wisdom in lonely grief? When you're walking a road like Hannah's, it's a lonely road, it's a burden, you feel like you can't share with anyone. Well, one thing to note is that the most difficult burdens to bear alone will often push you to be alone. And that's a dangerous place because Christians need each other. First Peter 5 tells us to cast our anxiety on the Lord. Galatians 6 is a helpful passage for Christians figuring out how to walk through this together. We have two pictures in Galatians 6. Paul says each will have to bear, carry his own load. But then we're also told to bear one another's burdens. So what goes on here? When he says each one will have to carry his own load, that's like wearing your backpack to school. It's like a knapsack. It's something you can pick up and you can carry. What this means is that we do all have responsibilities in life and they're ours to bear. Each one should accept and embrace those responsibilities. But at the same time, he says, bear one another's burdens. That's a second kind of load. It's an overwhelming load. It's like a dump truck load, like a load that no one can carry. And those you have to carry with other people. It's like when you move into a house, there are certain boxes you can pick up and carry in. There are others, it's time to move the piano. Y'all come. There are certain loads we cannot carry by ourselves. There are loads that can only be carried in community. And we all have both kinds of loads. And the deepest griefs are those kinds of loads. They're ones that push us to be alone, but we can't bear them alone. So you see the tension here. Because it's not one you want to share, but if you don't share, it can crush you. Most tender hurts linger in the private recesses of our hearts. But if they stay hidden always, they can crush us. So, it's okay to take time to grieve. It's how we process pain. And we don't need to grieve with everyone. But if you find yourself crushed under the burden of grief, find someone you love and trust to carry the burden with you. And I'll say this, if you don't have that person, our church is committed to being a safe space to hurt. Doesn't mean we always do it perfectly or well. But you can grieve here and know you will be loved. We often won't know what to say. But we will pray for you and with you. Christians cannot be the kind of people who hurt and tear each other apart. We have to hurt with those who are hurting. Bear one another's burdens. Pray for one another. Love one another. Be kind to one another. Serve one another. We will pray for you and we will love you. Secondly, 
even if the people around you don't handle it well, God can handle your grief. It's okay to not be okay. Sobbing makes people nervous. Like if I broke down right now in uncontrollable weeping on this platform, y'all would get uncomfortable real quick. You wouldn't know how to respond. Yet our God delights in hearing the cries of his children. Maybe you've had the feeling you're not angry. You're not bitter, you don't think. You're hurting. You're just sad all the time. But you can ugly cry to our God and he won't care. He'll embrace you. He'll love you. Your ugly cry doesn't intimidate your heavenly father. James 5, 11, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And the language here is of a high degree of compassion, super compassionate and merciful. In other words, God ain't like you and me. We don't wear out his mercy. How great is the mercy of God? Psalm 103.11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. How high is that? Higher than you can think. Greater than you can comprehend. It's why Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that we may know the height and length and breadth and depth of the love of God. To know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. You can trust God with your grief. You can trust God with your hurt. If you've ever gone through a period of grief and you'd carry tissues or handkerchief, like you can soak through that handkerchief, but you cannot outcry God's shoulder. You can pour out your heart to the Lord. You can know that God is more able to absorb your grief than you are able to pour it out. You can weep and despair, and God will meet you there. But in the end, only Christ can satisfy your heart's deepest longings. Now, I want to say this gently because God delights in giving his children good things. He doesn't treat our desire for good things as a nuisance. Like when your kids want something good, you're not like, (laughs) that's not how God interacts. Like if you ask him for bread, he's not going to give you a stone If you ask him for a fish, he's not going to give you a serpent. There's a noticeable lack of rebuke for Hannah in this passage. Eli messes up. Elkanah falls short. Hannah pleads with the Lord, and the Lord answers. But in spite of the fact that Hannah longs for this son, she doesn't idolize her son. As soon as Samuel is weaned, She leaves him at the temple to serve the Lord. So God gives her a gift. She gives the gift back to the Lord. Just remarkable. 
And after she gives away this long-for child, she praises God in 1 Samuel 2. After she receives the gift and gives it back, she praises the Lord. My heart exults in the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. She no longer has that child at home. And she rejoices in God. Her delight is in God above all else. God's gifts aren't the point. The gifts point to the giver. The key to true satisfaction is finding our delight in Christ above all else, above all other pleasures, above all other gifts, above all other imaginings. You see, Hannah's gift of her firstborn son is a small foreshadowing of God's sacrifice of his son for our sins. The father sent the son to be the savior of the world. And if you turn to him in repentance and faith, this gift can be yours. Would you turn from your sin and trust Christ today? Fourthly, and finally, be gentle and patient with the grief of others as Christ is gentle and patient with you. I mean, let's think about this. Job's wife. Curse God and die. Job's four friends. Job, something deeply wrong with you. Eli, a priest. Every one of them makes the same mistake. Each of them interact by trying to fix the problem. And in trying to fix the problem, they judge the griever's response to the Lord. If you're a fixer, you know what this is like. Someone comes to you, they just want to be heard, and you try to fix the problem. Yet our God is full of compassion. To put this another way, be there for people in their grief, but give them space to grieve. Be there for them, but give them space. We should be willing to grieve with people. But we can't expect that everyone will want to grieve with us. And we have all kinds of descriptions of Christ's character in the Bible. But only one description of his heart, Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. To those who want a child but don't have one, you can run to our gentle, compassionate Savior. To those who had a child and lost a child, you can run to our gentle, compassionate Savior. The man of sorrows who is well acquainted with grief. And when you cry there, you will find him more able to meet your grief than the amount of grief you can offer him. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Let's take a moment now, respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.